You're listening to The Real Investment Show. this morning so uh the fed meeting right around the corner of uh of course tomorrow <laughs> so what's the fed gonna do right this is the big uh the big question right this is really kind of everybody's thing right i'm in the market don't want to do anything because the fed's doing liquidity so the whole question is is when is the fed gonna stop doing liquidity right and the belief is right now it's like oh they're never gonna stop maybe the case not arguing that point but a uh, few things to keep a watch on for tomorrow. If you take a look at inflation um, as a function of the post-recovery, right? Inflation's running a lot high, hotter than what official measures of CPI suggest, right? Now, CPI is running right around 2.5% inflation. Um, if you kind of take a look at the uh, the inflation that's been caused, you know, post-pandemic as, you know, we kind of get things back in action, toilet paper prices. Um, you know, we've got a lot of shortage of things, used car prices, semiconductor prices, all these things are shooting through the roof, lumber prices, because of shortages, right? So the actual inflation is actually a lot hotter than what CPI suggests. Plus, there's a lot of manipulations that go on with CPI anyway uh, to suppress that rate. Why? Um, well, we started suppressing CPI back in the late 90s after Bill Clinton borrowed $2 trillion from Social Security to balance the budget and to get the, you know, get the country into a surplus for about 12 minutes. Uh, the Boston Commission was brought in to readjust the way that we calculate CPI in order to suppress the rate of CPI growth because that is a direct contributor to increased payments for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, right? So we had to figure out a way to suppress the rate of, inf- of what we report as inflation. That's when we swapped out home prices for homeowners equivalent rent. We've done all these uh, uh, kind of manipulations of CPI with things called hedonics. Uh, this is where a computer you bought back in the 90s is actually more deflationary today because it does so much more at the same price and all this kind of other nonsense, right? used to be that we just based CPI on a basket of goods. You went to the store, you bought a basket of goods, and you just measured that same basket of goods year over year. And what was the price change? There you go, right? So we got away from that because inflation was running too hot, and we couldn't have that. And so we've tried to come up with continued ways to suppress inflation, the measure of inflation, so we don't have to pay as much in benefits. That's it. That's, uh, that's, that's the whole big secret behind inflation. That's why nobody buys off on the inflation number. Like, have you been to the gas station lately? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, is they don't want to pay them more out in Social Security because um, it's big, right? It's a $70 trillion, it's actually closer to $90 trillion of unfunded liability. So, yeah, small changes to inflation mean a lot. Um, but this is, you know, and, and we're also seeing this, but we're seeing these higher prices being reflected into earnings calls. And more and more companies are starting to talk about inflation as a part of their earnings. And in terms of higher prices, higher import prices, higher export prices, higher commodity prices, higher wage costs, all that inflation is being absorbed into the company and that suppresses profitability. So a company has two choices, of course, either to absorb that and reduce profitability or they have to pass it on to consumers. 
The problem with passing on as consumers is, is that consum- you know, consumers, 70% of the economy is consumption. Higher prices to households mean they can buy less with their money. And wages really aren't rising all that fast. So how many households are concerned about higher prices? 46% say they're very concerned. 41% say they're somewhat concerned. And people that don't live say they're 14, 14% of those people uh, say they're not concerned at all about higher inflation. Um, you, know, uh, you know, generally, the people that are most concerned about inflation are the people in the bottom, bottom 80% of your population that live pretty much paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. If you're not concerned about inflation, you're probably in the top 10%, right? You've got plenty of discretionary cash flow. Inflation is not that big of a problem. Um, and, and that actually shows up in the data. If you take a look at where um, inflation is showing up the most and, and where people are more concerned about it, it's in lower, it's, it's in, you know, people making between 50 and 100,000, $150,000, right? So lower income brackets. Um, but this is also going to lead to, so this spike in inflation, and of course, as we get, then a lot of this inflationary pressure right now is being driven by all these stimulus payments. And that is all now kind of in the rearview mirror. And as we run through stimulus payments and tax refunds, very likely we're going to see economic growth peak in this quarter. And we'll start to see that regression back towards the long-term growth rate of the economy, which will be somewhere around 2% maybe a little bit less coming out of this cycle. So for the next year, like I said, we're going to probably average somewhere around 6.5%, you know, real economic growth after inflation in 2021. Um, in 2022, that's likely going to drop down somewhere around, you know, one and three quarters, 2%. And that's not surprising because that's where the economic growth is, right? And we even talked about this in yesterday, in this weekend's article about what are interest rates telling us. Interest rates are telling you that economic growth is around 2%, real, real economic growth. Now, stimulus is creating the excess. But once that, once we, it's like, uh, you know, kind of like throwing gasoline on your driveway, right? You can light, you can light the gasoline and your driveway will light on fire until the gasoline burns off and then you're just left with your driveway with a big stain on it. Um, that's the economy, right? We're going to just kind of light some gasoline on concrete for a moment. It's going to burn really hot, and then the, the gasoline is going to burn off, and we're just left with you know what we had before. But this is all going to kind of play into the Fed's you know kind of outlook here over the course of the next you know few months. Um, right now, U.S. financial conditions are easier, right? We've got the easiest financial conditions because of all the co- accommodation and liquidity coming from the Fed we've ever had in history. In fact, lower than it was in 1999. But that's also an important point. Whenever we've previously had lows in financial easiness, when were they? 1999, 2008, 2000 and late 2014. And of course, you had 15, 16 was your taper tantrum. You had two 20% declines in late 2015 and early 2016. Uh, late 2017, we had really easy financial conditions. He had a 20% decline in 2018. Had pretty easy conditions in February of 2020, and then you had March. And now you've got the easiest financial conditions on record. So what this tells you is, is that whenever you have periods of really easy financial conditions, they don't tend to last long and you tend to get a reversal, which suggests that the Fed may be closer to actually tightening up on their monetary accommodations sooner 
rather than later. And in fact, if you take a look at where money's flowing right now, there's a lot of money flowing into to Treasury and agency securities, primarily by central banks. In other words, the, there's this closed loop between the Treasury, the banks, and the Fed. And about 28% of all the lending is going between that closed loop. So it's not going into the economy. It's just fostering this whole liquidity push in the markets. But again, this is also points where you begin to see this, this turn. And right now, a lot of economists are starting to suggest that we're going to see the Fed starting to slow these purchases from $120 billion a month, start to slow those down as soon as the third quarter and probably in the fourth quarter of this year. And then we'll probably start talking about rate hikes sometime in 20, early 2022, early to mid-2022. Once you begin that process, and, and this is the thing about the markets, as soon as you start the process of tapering off QE, and specifically when you start talking about a rate hike, you start the clock ticking for the next market event, right? It's about nine months. So what that tells you is, is that once we get through the stimulus program, they start tapering this and they start hiking rates. You've got about nine months until your next financial event. And that's going to be sometime late 2022, early 2023, if timing works out right. Now, there's a whole variety of things that could speed that process up. But, you know, you're in the very late stage of this market advance, right? So, and, and particularly if this is all driven by liquidity and Fed easy financial conditions, watch those financial conditions because when they start to turn, that's when the clock starts ticking for a market event. And this, and this kind of leads us, and again, we'll talk some more about this tomorrow, uh, sorry, on Thursday with Michael Leibowitz once we actually have the Fed announcement out, we'll get into some of the details of what they say, kind of peg down this timing a bit. But this, the, but this idea of tightening also leads us back to this, you know, this idea of why forward returns on markets will continue to fall. And as we discussed yesterday, that suggested that somewhere in the next, you know, few years, there will be a fairly decent bear market event that will reduce valuations and lower forward returns. And but what I want to go through when we come back from the break is to talk a little bit about some of the myths right now that are being run around the markets to try to justify overpaying for stocks, right? And this is the key point. If we overpay for value today, you're going to wind up really paying that price down the road. Well, there's three different kind of, you know, excuses being rationalization, shall we say, put out in the markets right now about why you should be okay overpaying for assets. It's going to be fine this time. Is it? We'll talk about those when we come back from the break because you'll know them when you hear them. <laughs> Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Our technical speaking post is up on the website right now, by the way. Um, simply go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on our technically, technically speaking post. While you're there, also make sure and sub click the YouTube channel link. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch our live videos as we produce them, as well as our three-minute money uh, market on money videos every day that we put out. And uh, also click on our newsletter link for our weekly newsletter. It's all there for you at the website. It's absolutely free, of course. Realinvestmentadvice.com.
listening to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last lunch and learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required.